Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, uh, it's interesting. We are um, we're continuing in the Gospel of John today. And here in just a little bit, we'll get to the passage, but we'll be in John chapter 10. We're going to be closing out the chapter. Um, the reason I said it was interesting is because we just had a baby dedication. And, you know, one of the things of our pursuits in life is we're always trying to find out our, our, our identity. Like, who are we, right? So what would you say, for example, is the most important thing about you? Maybe it's uh, usually like if you introduce yourself to somebody, the first thing that you ask about them, you guys are meeting, you're like, hey, I'm Terry. They're like, oh, nice to meet you. What do you do? Right? Maybe it's your job. You would say it's like it kind of describes you the best. It's, it's what you do. Maybe it's like a, maybe a hobby. You would say, hey, I'm a, I'm a nerd, so I like uh, nerdy stuff, you know? <laughs> Whatever you're a nerd about, right? Like I'm a nerd, like I like art and comic books stuff, superhero stuff or whatever. Maybe you're a nerd about sports and you know all the baseball stats or, you know, whatever. And that would kind of define who you are in your, your interest group. Um, maybe it's a particular component about yourself that you see is kind of more foundational to who you are. Maybe it's your, your sexuality or your ethnicity or your physical or intellectual abilities that kind of are more core of who you are. Maybe it's uh, your history defines you. Maybe the ups and downs that you've been through in life to kind of get you to this point where you are, you would say that that's kind of that's kind of who I am. I am what, what I've been doing and, and those sorts of things. Well, this morning, I want us to go deeper than all of those things. I want us to get to a more foundational level about what identity means. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer. And I think he said it right. He wrote this in his book called Knowledge of the Holy. He says this. It should be coming up on Yeah, it's on the screen. Now, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Okay, so we come to our passage today with this thing in mind. It's the ideas that we have about God that are the most important things about us individually and as a church body, as we gather uh, here this morning. Um, truthfully, this idea about the identity of God is something that if you've been part of this journey through the Gospel of John, you've seen it front and center over and over and over again. Why do you think that 
John puts it over and over again in his account of Jesus' life. Why would he do that? He's making a point, isn't he? (laughs) And so why do you think that God would preserve that for us here today? Because we need to hear it over and over again. We need to be reminded about the identity of God. Again, because God's identity is the most important thing about Him. And what we think about God's identity is the most important thing about us. So here we are uh, today. Last week, we were continuing in Jesus' encounter with His enemies, His detractors. And basically what we see is everywhere Jesus goes... This group of religious leaders is following him around, trying to discredit anything that Jesus says or does, right? They're always there in the background and sometimes in the, in the foreground, yelling, pointing a finger, condemning Jesus, that sort of thing. And we'll see in a few weeks that what they were actually doing was looking for justification to murder Jesus. That was the point. They were looking for reason to, to say it's okay to kill this man, Jesus, Um, So we'll pick back up in the last verses. Pastor James actually took us through these uh, first uh, few last week, but we'll begin for context in John chapter 10, verse 28. And we'll go through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking. John chapter uh, 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John, this is not John the writer of the gospel, John the baptizer, where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So I think that there are three sort of main truths that God wants us to take from this passage today. First one's really plain. Uh, Jesus is God would be the, would be the first one. If you're a note taker, um, Jesus is God. And again, this has been a running theme throughout the Gospel of John and is no more plain anywhere in the Gospel of John than it is here in our text today. Jesus plainly says that He and the Father are one. Now, in the context that we just read, that Jesus is saying that phrase in a very controversial phrase, it's in the context of salvation. Jesus is saying that He and the Father are one in their work of salvation. But let me ask you a question. Who saves? God saves us. Do we save ourselves? No. 
Can we save one another? No. God saves us. So clearly, Jesus is saying that He is God because He and the Father are one in the act of salvation. In fact, He says in verse 28, Jesus said that, He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Right? Then He goes on to say, no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. Right? So both of them are operating in salvation. Clearly, Jesus is claiming that He is the author and the finisher of our faith, God in the flesh. This is what Jesus is claiming. Now, the Pharisees did not miss this. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. That's why they picked up stones again to kill the man, because He, being a man, was claiming to be God. So this morning, everybody, I hope you're caffeinated. Everybody caffeinated. You're feeling good. Put your thinking caps on with me for just a little bit because I want to spend some time in discussing something that we really haven't talked in depth about as a young church plant of nearly two years. Infants, aren't we? We're just getting started, man. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, I want us to talk about the Trinity, what we just sang about when we sang the songs, Holy, Holy, Holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I want to talk about what we mean by that, what Christians mean when we say there's one God who is tri-personal. What in the world, right? And maybe even if you're a Christian in here, you've, maybe even if you've grown up in the church, if you were to sit down and try to explain the Trinity to somebody, you'd be like, about like that, right? About, about like that. Um, and hopefully we can unpack this a little bit, and we're going to do it more in our MCs this week. You don't want to miss the beginning of, of MCs this week. It's going to be good stuff. Um, so, you know, although Christians say we believe in one God, by non-Christian groups, we're often accused of believing in three gods, right? Like Muslims and, and people would accuse Christians of saying, when we say Father, Son, and Spirit, they say, well, that's actually three gods. That's polytheism. That's pagan. You, could, you should be condemned for that. Um, others who maybe even claim to be Christian would say that there is only one God, but that God's not a trinity. That God only works as or portrays Himself as three persons. Uh, that's actually a, uh, a, what we would call a heresy, a false teaching about God that the early church rightly condemned really early on. So where do we get this idea of God being a trinity? Where do we get it? It's, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. It's just not. Uh, so where do we get it? Is it, is it biblical? Uh, again, we're by no means going to be able to fully explain this this morning, but I hope to at least touch on it. We begin to see the Trinity, glimpses of that God is one being in multiple persons right in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You're like, Terry, I don't see the Trinity in there. Well, let's just unpack what it actually says. Here, first you have God, in the beginning, God. And when the Bible uses the term God just in, without uh, qualification, it's usually talking about God the Father. Um, that's why Jesus says that, um, that he, he is sent by God, 
right? He's sent by the Father. So we have God, the Father there. We also see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, yet both God and the Spirit of God are referred to as God, but they're doing different things, aren't they? And finally, we see God bringing things about through saying words. And obviously, God doesn't have vocal cords, so we're going to talk about what that means here in just a minute. So already we have one God being shown to be at least two persons. Right here in the beginning of the Bible, um, there are lots of other Old Testament passages that we could go through. Again, we don't have time to get into all that this morning. But also in the opening of John's Gospel. Remember John the Baptist, Jesus later described John as kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing that, hey, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, and he's here, behold the Lamb. Right? That was John the Baptist's kind of job. It's what God set him up to do. Well, um, John... The apostle wrote this about John the Baptist in John chapter 1 that began this study of the gospel of John that we've been in. I want you to listen to John chapter 1, and this is how the NIV reads it because I think it translates it really well. But at the opening here, John the apostle demonstrates that Jesus is that word who was God and was with God in the beginning at the creation. Check this out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, both with and was, right? He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, which means He couldn't have been made. He's not one of the made things. He made all things. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And then down in verse 14 it continues, that Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John John Baptist testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of His fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen there, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. John is very clear here. Jesus is God. The Father is God. As we read in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit is God. So the disciples of Jesus had no question that Jesus was a man. They walked with Jesus during His ministry, right? He, Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. He got tired. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, of course. Um, he grew up relatively anonymous. Nobody knew who He was till He hit the scene at John's uh, baptizing of folks. And soon, though, everybody around Jesus would realize that Jesus, it was indeed a man. He was much more than just a man. And speaking of John's baptism of Jesus, we see it very clearly 
in Matthew chapter 3, if you're a note taker, you may want to write that one down, beginning in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Now let's pause. It was customary at the time to, when you were baptized, you came up out of the water, before you walked onto the shore, you would confess your sins. Well, what does it say about Jesus? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. No sins to confess by Jesus. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So here... This one single historical event sitting at the beginning of your New Testament, you have God the Son who added humanity to His divinity, was born of a virgin, sinless, here in the water being baptized. And God the Holy Spirit who hovered over the deep waters at creation is now lighting down on God the Son in the water. And God the Father is speaking from heaven, saying, This is my Son. In Him I'm well pleased. You have the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Son in the water. And you have the Holy Spirit lighting on the Son as a dove. We have the Trinity on full display here, or at least clear display, with the baptism of Jesus. And throughout our Bibles, we have all three of these Persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all described as having the attributes of being a person. They have a will. They have emotions, things like that. And we see them all described as being God, being God. The Father forgives sin. The Son forgives sin. The Spirit empowers. The Spirit raises from the dead. The Spirit empowers the Son in His ministry. We see these things. All members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are persons, yet all are God, yet the consistent testimony throughout the Bible is there's only one God. There's only one God. So if we combine these truths, what we must have as the testimony of history in the Bible is that there is one God who consists of three persons. That may sound really, really odd to you. You know why? Because it is really, really odd. And the reason I say that is because there's no thing or no one else like God. God is 100% unique in that. That's part of what we mean when we say He is holy. He is different. He is other. God is God. There's nothing else like God. Trying to wrap our little finite human minds around one God, three persons, omnipotent, uh, eternal, infinite, all those things will make your head explode. Because here we are, little tiny human beings, uh, trying to understand God. Well, I'm grateful that He has revealed Himself to us in the Scripture. But people have come up with all kinds of analogies to try to describe the Trinity because it's so hard to understand. And rightfully so. I mean, how else are we going to describe Something like God. I mean, how's that going to happen? Um, no analogy is perfect, uh, but some are better than others. And I won't get into all of them, uh, but I'll just let that the ones that say that God is like an egg or God is like water 
Or God is like a human being who takes on different roles, like a father and a son and a husband, those sorts of things. Those actually all deny the Trinity. I want to say that as softly as I can. But they all actually end up denying the Trinity. Again, we'll discuss that more in MCs. You want to be there. Um, but for our purposes today, you may want to take notes here. Just understand that any description of the Trinity, any description of God that's going to be true to how God has revealed God to be, and the Bible has got to hold on to these three truths that you see up there. God is three persons. Each person of God is fully God. And there's only one God. Only one God. So there's, a, there's an ancient visual aid that the church has used for a very, very long time to describe God. And you see it up on the screen, and I hope this helps. What you see here is you see that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. Spirit is not the Father. They're, they're distinct. They're different persons. But all of them is, or are, God. Right? So, because we live in the Asheville uh, sort of New Agey uh, whatever era, this, this, can be, this analogy can be sort of taken the wrong way. It might be misunderstood to think that, okay, there's the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and God is like this fourth thing that they share, that they all kind of have. Well, that's not the case. This is, I think, what it is, would help us understand it. There is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They're not each other, but they are God. Does that make sense? All right. They are God. Thank you for saying this. I'm so glad, Steve. Thank you for that affirmative. Appreciate that. Um, so we can talk about uh, that more in, um, in MCs. But yeah, there's no like God consciousness that these persons share. No, they are God. They are God. Um, God the Son the second person of this one triune being uh, remained fully God, but added a human nature conceived as a vir- uh, of a virgin without sin. His name is Jesus. It's amazing to think about that that is Jesus. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, Among the Jews there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let's get this clear. Among the pantheists, like Indians, anyone might say he was part of God or one with God, and there would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that type of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said in claiming to be God quite simply was the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. That's why in our passage today, these Jewish leaders have picked up stones to stone Jesus. Uh, So let's get back to our text. How does Jesus respond to the accusation that he's God? by saying one of the weirdest things in the New Testament. He responds with a really odd phrase. Check this out. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Uh, Pardon me? Let's keep going. If If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming, 
because I said, I'm the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Let it be remembered that as Reach Life Church, we don't skip the hard stuff, right? Here we go. There are some false religions and false teachers that point to this passage saying that human beings are like little gods. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus is saying the opposite of that, and I'll show you how. He's doubling down on the claim that Jesus is God by adding, not only is Jesus God, but you are not. Not only is Jesus God, but you are not. Um, the, this you are God's phrase that Jesus uses here is kind of plucked out of its context to support all kinds of, of false teachings. Some people might say that, well, God is like a family and he invites you into the family. Or things like, in Jesus, you are anything that God is. Or God has given you sovereignty over, over your life. Now, some people may not be that uh, upfront about it, and some people may not themselves know that they have bought into this idea that human beings are like little gods, but it has crept into their teaching. So I want to be, I want to be really careful here, but I, I think it'd be for our health to notice some of the false uh, wording and some of the false uh, veins that people run in that actually are born out of this idea that humans are little gods. So this is super important. Um, people uh, sometimes have the idea that we, as human beings, can speak things into existence in our lives and in the lives of other people and cause those things to be. So rather than standing on God's declarations, that we can also declare things that aren't as though they were. They'll even quote a passage that says that about God and apply it to us. So rather than petition God for things or ask God for things, we just speak to our circumstances like God speaks to our circumstances. So the difference might look like this. Someone who's gotten this uh, confused in their minds may say something like, if they're looking for a job, I uh, declare or decree that this job is mine. Um, and the idea is that by your words and your intentions, you can cause that thing to happen. Um, this is literally what the word abracadabra means. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. That word means I create as I speak. So knowingly or unknowingly, saying that you create things with your words and you can speak things into existence is asserting yourself in a way that only God should and a way that only God can. So someone who, if you have it straight in your mind, it might, that same sort of um, prayer may sound like, actually be a prayer, would sound like this, Lord, I, I humbly recognize your sovereignty. And I ask that you would give me this job in accordance with your will. It may look something like that. Um, that is recognizing that only God is God and you trust him, right? And you petition him, you, you ask. Um, so Jesus isn't teaching that we are gods. So what is Jesus teaching? <laughs> uh, the context of this passage reveals that Jesus um, 
you know, again, he pronounced himself one with the Father in verse 30. They pick up stones to stone him. He responds by pointing them back to Psalm 82. You may want to write Psalm 82 down. Uh, man, un- knowing our Old Testament is really important here. In Psalm 82, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a guy, a guy named Asaph writes down uh, about Israel's human judges that had been appointed by God and refers to them as though they were gods because they were being entrusted to judge on God's behalf. And so he refers to them in that way. Um, this is not new to the New Testament or to the Old Testament. Exodus 4, 16, this is not going to come on the screen. Says this, so he, speak, this is Aaron, shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you, Moses, shall be as a God to him. Elohim, right? So Moses will kind of be as a God to Aaron because Aaron's going to do everything that God says. That's not saying that Moses is God, right? Again, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you as God, Hebrew word Elohim, to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. Now, it doesn't mean that God made Moses God, but Moses operated under the authority of God before Pharaoh. Right? He was as God to Pharaoh. <laughs> Lastly, uh, one last thing that you want, may want to write down, Exodus 22. And we have, di- have different uh, interpretations or um, translations of the Bible in here. Just, just so I know who we're talking to, who, who has it like an NIV? Okay? Who has a New Living Translation? Any, a couple? Anybody have an ESV? Okay. Anybody have like an NASB? Okay. So we, we're all over the map. Okay. So in our Bibles, this may be translated differently, but Exodus 22, 8 says this. But if the thief is not found, this is talking about how God laid out laws for the Israelites in the book of Exodus. If the thief, somebody steals something and the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. Why would I bring that up? Depending on your Bible translation, that word judges is Elohim in the original Hebrew. God. So your ESV just leaves God in there, which is great because that's the word that's actually there. But the context tells us that it's actually speaking to the rulers that were ruling with the authority of God. And so if you have an NIV or something like that, it translates it for you into judges. And if, if Tim, I saw you had an NASB, then you've probably got a footnote down there um, that would say that. Okay, so Jesus is not saying, no, Jesus is not saying that humans can be or are little gods. Uh, Jesus is talking about His authority as God, not saying that humans can become gods. This verse or this psalm that Jesus quotes, Psalm 85, is interesting because it ends speaking of the real God saying this, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. It's interesting, Jesus quotes Psalm 85 to these Jewish leaders to whom the word of God came. These, are, these Pharisees are the people operating as quote-unquote God to the people. They're operating under the authority of God, and Jesus quotes Psalm 85 to them, where the real God rises up to judge the judges. Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 85, and so are those Pharisee leaders. Jesus is saying, I am God. You've been operating with the authority of God, you judges. 
but I'm here to judge you. This is amazing. It's amazing that Jesus is confronting these people uh, like this. Um, so Jesus is God. We are not. Man, that's a great thing, though. The reason is, is because we can have life with the real God. Jesus is God. We are not, but we can have life with the real God. The end of the chapter, back in our text, John chapter 10, picking up in verse 40, says this. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true. And many believed in him there. You know, we've been talking about it throughout this journey through the Gospel of John uh, about eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus alone gives eternal life. Well, last week, remember, uh, Pastor James hit on it pretty heavily. What is eternal life? It's life with God. Eternal life is life with God. How are we given eternal life? By believing, by trusting in Jesus, by putting our faith in Him. Faith means trust. We trust Jesus alone for our salvation. Remember, as A.W. Tozer said at the beginning, he said it right, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think C.S. Lewis, this is the last C.S. Lewis quote today, I promise. C.S. Lewis also had it right in his book, The Weight of Glory, when he said this, how we think of Him, God, is of no importance except insofar as it relates or it is related to how He thinks of us. It is written, you shall stand before Him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise. Almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is in Jesus. Only in Jesus can we at all stand before the Father. But there's amazing news. Anyone, including you, including wretched me, can place our trust in Jesus. And all who place our trust in Jesus will be counted as spotless before the Father. Man, that is fantastic news. Um, and they, it gets even better. But wait, there's more. Right? It, gets, it gets even better. That eternal life with God does not have to wait to start when you die. It starts the very moment you place your trust in Jesus. It could, for you, maybe start right here, right now, today, for the first time. Eternal life with God begins right now. So what do I mean that eternal life can start right now? What does eternal life with God right here, right now, even look like? Well, remember the words of Jesus back in John chapter 6. He says this. Verse 35 through 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. 
I said to you that you, do, that you have seen me, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is saying, just the way your body draws on really good food, it's getting to be lunchtime, right? You're thinking, I need some really good food. Jesus says, just the way your body draws nutrients and life from food, He is to be the life for your soul. He's the bread of life. Um, maybe today you think about the, na- the notion of life in your soul is kind of a foreign thing, man. Sounds, maybe it sounds weird to you because if you've sat long enough, quiet enough, you've thought about it enough, there's not much life in there. Maybe it's just kind of, kind of numb, kind of uh, empty. Maybe in you, you and your life have jumped from one relationship to another or one career to another or social experience to another, maybe from one religion to another. Seeking life for your soul. You know what the problem is with all those things? None of them are God. None of them are God. If God alone can provide eternal life, and if He has provided eternal life through God the Son, Jesus alone, why would we seek eternal life anywhere else than from Jesus? This deep desire in us to get rid of our emptiness isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It was placed there by God. Now I'll skip that last slide, Scotty, or the next slide, but just know this. Only Jesus satisfies. If, you've, if you're in here thinking, man, I've tried everything in my life, or I've tried nothing in my life. Maybe, maybe you've gone along uh, too quickly, and you try to keep yourself self so busy that you don't hear the emptiness in your soul. And you know if you sit quiet long enough, you start to feel it. So you just get busy doing something. Or you drink something, or you take something, or you do something to kind of make that numbness go away and not pay attention to it anymore. Listen, that gnawing numbness without Jesus is Jesus' grace to you. He's opening your soul to Him and saying, listen, I created you for me. When you have me, you will have life. Jesus wants to be your anchor. When life gets crazy, none of those other things are going to hold you. Jesus wants to be your strength. When you feel weak, ultimately, none of those things are going to hold you. Only Jesus can hold you. And listen, hold you, he will.